0: This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts.
1: All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast that covers all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is Hill Vaden here today with three guests to talk about global biofuels. Uh, I've got Christoph Berg, Kevin Lindemir, and Jordan Godwin, all sitting in different parts of the world right now. I think we're representing Germany and DC and Boston, is that right? Houston and Boston. Houston and Boston. Yeah. All right, and, and all of us uh, experiencing some 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 very warm weather, though oddly Houston a little bit cooler than than some of the coastal areas in the U.S. So uh, biofuels is a a hot topic uh, right now. No, no pun intended with, with the weather here, but um, I, I spend a lot of time each week, you know, talking to energy investors in the financial sector, um, and, and we're getting increasing questions. Around biofuels, you know, it, that in a sense kind of started th- th- this year in, in terms of really committed uh, interest, I'll say. Um, it seems to be really tied to the low carbon uh, kind of clean tech investment theme, though, while related to that, also completely different. From that, um, and so you know, I, I like to, you know, talk today with, with you guys to, to get a little bit of a you know discussion of the landscape and, and some of your thoughts on kind of what what we're seeing today and what we expect in the future. You know, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago before we started recording, there are a couple. Uh, there's an alphabet soup, uh, I think, in biofuels um, that, that is kind of second nature language to, to experts like yourselves. I'm going to define a couple of them here just to kind of get it out of the way. And then, you know, let's try to define them as we're talking from here on. But but the big ones, and please correct me if I'm misunderstanding any of this, but RINs or renewable identification numbers, th- these are the currency of the renewable fuel standard or RFS and effectively kind of a, a fingerprint for, for the renewable fuel that's been generated, a tradable marketable fingerprint. Is that the right way to think of it?
2: Yep, that's spot
1: on. That. All right. And and those are tied to the renewable fuel standard, uh, which is RFS, uh, which establishes a, a minimum volume of renewable fuels in US transportation fuels that has been around now for what about 15, 16 years since 2005. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then the other one, which I, I think uh, maybe these are all, uh, this one I think is maybe more international, but, but LCFS, low carbon fuel standard that that it's really led by California here in the U.S. and uh, rules to um, reduce the carbon intensity of transportation fuels, but that's also relevant in the EU and uh, other areas. Of kind of looking at this and and that, I, I assume is not limited to biofuels, but anything that reduces carbon intensity of transportation fuel.
2: Yep, that's right. Uh,
1: all right. so, so for all those listening everyone's nodding uh on the video call, call that we're on now so, so that's rin rfs and LTFS. That i think you guys are going to hear uh listeners are going to hear more of um so with that let's get into some of the meat of this uh christoph we're, we're going to start with you before um go, going into to some of the discussion around innovation and whatnot with kevin first off can you help us to understand kind of where we are with biofuels globally uh, right now, kind of the, 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 I suppose, the status quo and and really where the hotspots of kind of innovation activity uh, we should be watching.
3: Sure, Hill, thank you very much for inviting me. Well, investment in biofuels production plants may reach actually its highest level next year, and it's not going to fall off in 2023 either, and possibly not even in the following years. Um, According to our uh, information according to our data around 7 billion dollars will be spent on new capacity in uh, 2023 and that's about double the number in 2020 actually between 2015 and 2020 the average per year was around 1 to 3 billion dollars so that is quite a considerable jump that we are seeing in the biofuels space and there are um, three main areas where that money is going not not necessarily in the order of importance I would name India uh, with its um, fuel ethanol program which is being ramped up until the year 2025 so that investment is certainly accelerating then we are still having quite a high level of investment going on in Brazil in corn ethanol however that investment uh, phase is certainly slowing down and then of course the big chunk of a uh, big chunk of investment is still going in the renewable diesel sector particularly in the United states but also to a lesser extent in uh, europe and uh, there are good signs there are signs that this will then also happen in other parts of the world as well and who's... these
1: so, sorry so, so who's making this investment is this the traditional kind of refining complex uh that, that's really driving this activity
3: well when we talk about um, india it's mostly um, the agricultural complex which is driving okay. this uh, this investment so the traditional sugar mills but also grain processors, which are investing in in that area but increasingly so also the national oil companies so the indian oil companies are building their own plants in order to secure supplies in the case of Brazil, it's um, American money, which is uh, coming mm. to Brazil simply because they do have, um, you know, the production background, the expertise, how to handle corn, how to process corn, what to do with the co-products um, and also how to sell the ethanol. But in the case of renewable diesel, it's mostly the, the oil refining industry. And I guess we'll have opportunity to talk, to talk about that um, a little bit later. What is striking though, is that all of that investment, renewable diesel included, belongs to the group of um, traditional biofuels. So uh, it's not cellulosic uh, ethanol, it's not advanced biofuels, but it belongs to the group of first generation biofuels. In the advanced biofuels arena, there are some projects currently taking place, but these are far and and, um, far between, and they are relatively small. And um, they are mostly happening in um, the developed world, such as uh, Europe and uh, North America. Now, when we look at the global level, we do have about 11 million tons of um, renewable diesel capacity currently online, and that's metric tons, and about 60, 65 million tons of um, traditional biodiesel or fame, fatty acid, methyl, ester. So renewable diesel capacity has more or less doubled Within a span of three years, so that's uh, quite a, quite an increase, even though from a from a small base. When we look at uh, ethanol, we do have about 100 million tons of um, capacity, and uh, the growth here has not been that uh, big over the last couple of um, over the last couple of years. But this could change when we look at what is going on in India. Now, let's look um, at India as an example of a developing country, a um, country which is uh, dominated by agriculture, which is dominated also by distribution problems of of, um, food and the high price of oil, which is directly impacting the pockets of uh, motorists. The government in New Delhi has only recently brought forward it's E20 goal from 2030 to 2025. Now E20, what does that mean? It means a gasoline mix with 80% gasoline and 20% ethanol. And just to put that into perspective, they are not even at E10 yet. So currently they are about uh, 7.5% blend for ethanol. And for 2022, they hope to have E10 distributed nationwide. Now such a...
1: how does that compare to ethanol blending requirements and say that the, the U.S. or you know, other parts of the world is, is 20% aspirational for everyone or, or, or is that normal for other countries?
3: It's, 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 quite, it's quite an ambitious target. So the average in the United States is currently about E10. Uh, the situation in uh, brazil as uh, one of the oldest ethanol consuming countries in the world is uh, definitely higher it's about um, 50 percent of the gasoline or the auto cycle motor fuel pool is um, is coming from from ethanol and if you look at uh, europe it's certainly um, about five to six to seven percent on on average but e20 for such a big country such as India is certainly not only um, challenging from a production point of view, but also very challenging from a logistical point of view.
1: And, and let, let me, oh, i so, sorry, let me let me interrupt you just for a second and see if I can bring in Ke- Kevin on a uh, question. One of your comments here just a second ago, Christoph, what, what was on the difference in advanced and, and first generation biofuels? Can, can we back up a little bit to, to explain what the difference is in that and, and how we should think about that, uh, Kevin?
4: Yeah, it, I think the, the simple way to look at this is that uh, first generation biofuels use edible feedstocks. So it would use like uh, soybean oil or canola oil or uh, corn ethanol or sugarcane ethanol. So the feedstocks can also go to food and do. Second generation are non food feedstocks. Now, there are some blurred lines in here, but that's the generally accepted definition is that second generation is inedible, and it also has a much lower carbon intensity. However, the lines are blurring between first and second generation, as when those definitions were put in place years ago, uh, we've seen evolution in the first generation part of the biofuels industry that is actually exceeding greenhouse gas reductions, and the supply is actually increasing faster than was anticipated. So those lines are beginning to blur between the first and the second generation feedstock.
1: Okay. Okay. And Christoph, it was India. India is focusing more right now on the first generation advancement?
3: Absolutely. And that also has to do with their primary focus. So um, there are three reasons why New Delhi is uh, implementing this program. And the first and foremost is really that they want to get rid of their burdensome sugar surplus. So they produce much more sugar than they consume internally. And they have to sell it abroad with the help of export subsidies. They have to support farmers so that they do not get uh, bankrupt. And and they found ethanol to be a a solution. And therefore, they are now ramping up um, the the program. But also, of course, they want to dampen the rise of uh, the price in, in gasoline. So, whenever uh, oil prices on the international market markets go up, um, that has a direct impact on uh, the pump prices in, in India. And finally, and that is a very recent uh, factor which has come into play, is they want to improve their urban air quality. So, ethanol still has uh, a role to play here, a very important role to play, but it's certainly not their primary Uh, target. Uh, The primary target is really handling and managing their uh, commodity problem, in particular the one for for sugar. And the funny thing is that they are emulating the Brazilian example. Brazil started with its uh, ethanol program in the mid-1970s, turning sugar into ethanol to become less dependent on imports and of course also manage uh, commodity supplies better.
4: I think there's something here that Christoph just pointed out that is important to, um, uh, to, to highlight here, is that historically for biofuels, there have been three major drivers. One has been energy security, one has been agricultural, agricultural uh, economic support, and the third has been environment. And where we are today is you see all of those drivers in various intensities and priorities occurring all over the world. So if you're investing somewhere uh, in a biofuel project and you have a project in one country or another country, it's important to understand what the primary driver is behind that. Uh, is it driven by agriculture policy? Is it driven by environmental or energy security?
1: And when we're, I guess, kind of looking at this, you know, the, the, the areas that Christoph mentioned, India, Brazil, and the US seem to have very large kind of agricultural opportunity that uh, really creates, uh, maybe predictable is the wrong word, but, but I'll use it, predictable source of supply for biofuels. If I'm looking at this from a kind of competitive advantage standpoint, is there a first mover advantage in, in any of this from a corporate perspective? Or did, I think Christoph mentioned that, that India is kind of copying Brazil in terms of the model. You know, what, what's the pace of development in all of this? And, and is there an urgency beyond some of the top-down kind of government issues that, that we should be paying attention to?
4: Well, the big driver in, in all of this, it doesn't really matter if it's ag or energy security or environment, it's policy. Mm-hmm. So there is a, I suppose, a first-mover advantage and the, probably the advantage doesn't really matter until you start approaching the blending limit that's been specified by whatever the policy is. So, uh, Christoph is talking about E20 is the goal in India, where you begin to have a problem with uh, investment in supply. and supply, and we have it here in the United States, is that the industry invests and invests, and then you start approaching that mandated blend wall. And then when you run up against that blend wall, then it becomes very problematic because the the demand curve is it goes up to ten percent and then it stops. Or in India it goes to twenty percent and stops. Mm-hmm. So you need a first you need a solid policy framework that everybody is comfortable investing into that your the policy will support you. But then you also have to have uh, investors that realize that we gotta be careful not to, you know, approach the line or government moving the line. So, as it, uh, Christoph pointed out, India moves the line. They went to 20%. We And Brazil has been moving the line because ethanol supplies have been getting more and more abundant. And I think the United States will move the line at some point uh, in uh, over the next few years. We'll will increase that blending limit. And that seems to
1: be true for all of these examples, that they're extending the line r- rather than c- call it accordion you know, where the line shrinks with one leadership and expands with another leadership based on politics. Is everyone almost with consistency extending it?
4: I don't think you can say it's with consistency. (laughs) Uh, What do you think, Jordan?
2: No, I don't think so, because, I mean, um, you saw with the uh, Trump administration was certainly much more um, friendly to the refining industry and the refining side of that policy. And not pushing those boundaries as much or as, as ambitious as previous administrations had. So um, that's definitely become you know kind of an accordion. Uh, I like that analogy that you used there.
3: And so there's then, also yeah. another. And then there's also another restriction. I mean, as far as um, the agricultural and the food and feed markets are concerned, energy is a very big factor. Mm -hmm. when we look at it from the other end of the um, of the of the table for energy markets these contributions of biofuels are relatively small so these two markets are a little bit out of line as far as size and impact is concerned so whenever india should you know approach the situation where sugar has you know gotten under control and uh, sugar prices are 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 profitable and uh, millers are doing fine farmers are doing fine there might be um, a point when the government says the goal is still in place but we really do not need to enforce the um, e20 program um, uh, in order to mop up any any sugar surpluses so uh, the the policy might be in place but enforcing it is a completely uh, different matter and you see that um, you know in many countries with these uh, market uh, with these market mandates as well
1: Jordan, maybe you can kind of pick up on this and expand. You know, add a little bit of context around enforcement and compliance. And my my limited understanding is that the the, the RINs, the Renewable Identification Number, uh, are you know that compliance mechanism is. And there's been, I think, some instances of um, call it lack of compliance in the past in, in certain areas. Are there markets that are more mature th- th- than others and in- all of this as it comes to enforcement and compliance?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly the renewable fuel standard, uh, like you said, has been around for um, about 16 years now. And the refining industry, the the obligated parties under the RFS who are required to uh, buy these rents and be compliant, take it very seriously. I don't think we've had a major, uh, you know, um, you know where a company went rogue or didn't didn't meet their obligations. I, I think the fines are extremely steep, um, so steep that you know no one would want to want to take that chance. So certainly the the rins have been effective in driving that uh, growth and driving the um, growth and blending of uh, ethanol into the gasoline pool in the U.S. over the years. But like Kevin said, you did hit hit a limit, and. Um, once that limit is hit, um, sometimes some interesting things can happen. For example, in 2013, we had a pretty big drought uh, that really affected the corn crop, and mm-hmm. uh, saw a very. Uh, refiners knew that it would be harder to get their hands on ethanol production and rins, so the price of the wren shot up uh, to a record high that wasn't breached until this year. Um, the ethanol rin was around a dollar fifty way back in. 2013. And um, from then, Iran was very volatile, but maybe uh, typically 30 to 50 cents or so. And then this year in 2021, with the Biden administration coming in, and also a, a very interesting phenomenon happening uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic, where the government had basically mandated way more ethanol to be blended into the gasoline pool than we even used in uh, 2020. That caused a real severe shortage of RINs and a lot of concern around refiners being able to meet their obligations. So over the past few months, we've seen RINs at even higher than those record highs hit uh, eight years ago. Um, So they breached uh, $2 even, um, $2 per RIN. And the impact that that has on um, a typical typical gallon of gasoline in the U.S. is around 23 cents per gallon, which is which is pretty steep. Um, you know, might make up uh, about 10% of mm-hmm. the, the gasoline cost. And when you weren't paying for that, you know, a few months ago, it uh, certainly has uh, had an impact and has wreaked a lot of havoc outside of just the biofuels space.
1: And should we be thinking about this in, in very localized terms, and the way that one maybe thinks about kind of Power utilities, as opposed to more global market terms, in the, one the way in the way we think about oil markets.
4: Yeah, very much so, because uh, biofuel policies are are defined by regulatory jurisdictions. So, for the EU, for example, it's um, hundred uh, 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 percent. The EU has a common policy, but individual countries have some variations on that. In the U.S., we have the, um, the U.S. federal policy, the RFS, but then we have states that have uh, their own policies like uh, the LCFS in California and Oregon, uh, and the same thing as in Canada. So, And we have a number of states now beginning to adopt or uh, are considering adopting low carbon fuel standards. But for right now, it's um, in Europe and in the United States, there, there is a national level policy there are states or areas that have their own variations on that policy and in the case of the u.s those variations are quite large uh, the california program and the oregon program are significantly significant add-ons to the uh, federal renewable fuel standard
1: it, so, so then when we're looking at this kind of in, in a very localized manner like this how does can we put biofuels into a larger kind of refining context i mean is this a, you know, 1% and growing, 10% and growing? How, how significant is biofuels in the larger downstream complex?
4: Well, in, in the United States, we're, we're at about 10 or 11% ethanol, and we are about uh, maybe 4 or 5% biodiesel. But then if you go look at California, California is about 10 or 11% ethanol. But we're now getting up close to 30% of the diesel fuel market is, is bio and it's a combination of biodiesel and renewable diesel. And the policy in California is going to cause this to continue rising uh, because the the policy lowers the carbon intensity of the fuel that you can sell on the road every year. There is a technical reason why renewable diesel is growing so fast, is that there's no blending limit. There's no, it's technically and, uh, and chemically, Practically indistinguishable from diesel fuel, except in one regard. quality wise, it's much better than diesel fuel. On ethanol, we're limited to ten percent by statute, and there are states considering going beyond ten percent. but uh, the the ethanol is chemically very different from gasoline. There's concerns about higher blends and how they are compatible with vehicles. So right now there's a uh, the, the on the renewable diesel market and even uh, and increasingly uh, on the jet fuel market, mm-hmm. there's tremendous upside demand in that area and not much upside demand on the ethanol side.
1: So you, you mentioned jet fuel and Christoph, if we're thinking about this from, from kind of the, the demand perspective, it seems to be that, uh, well, I mean, we, we've talked about transportation fuels and you know, oftentimes we think about that in terms of cars uh, or, or trucks. Um, should we be thinking about it more in terms of aircraft and/or and shipping?
3: I guess one should approach it from the angle of transportation fuels in general. So, uh, road transportation is certainly the um, dominating fuel as far as biofuel or dominating market as far as far as biofuels concerned. However, this is likely to change going forward, and the most immediate. Um, transportation sector which comes to mind is is really air travel Mm -hmm. Um, and here as Kevin has already um, pointed out you know there are already quite significant initiatives underway to mandate the use of so-called sustainable aviation fuel in uh, in air travel and that is likely to uh, grow going forward and uh, I guess the biofuels uh, industry will respond to that and um, The second uh, market for transportation fuels, marine fuels, that's more tricky because um, here the specifications are a little bit more difficult and also, you know, the logistical value chains are a a little bit more complex than in uh, in terms of um, air travel. But nevertheless, this is already been identified as another market for, uh, for biofuels further down the road, even though these biofuels which will be put um, into the ships will probably have only um, little to do w- with those biofuels that we are currently seeing that are being p- put into the tanks of, um, of, uh, of cars. Uh, but nevertheless, the bio content, whether it's uh, you know, solid or liquid uh, in, transporta- in the transportation sector is definitely going to rise.
1: Is there any investment needed um, on the demand side? I mean, can and this may be a stupid question, but, but can I put biofuels into an airplane in the same way that I would put jet fuel, or, or do I need to do something different to my airplane?
4: No, it's um, right now uh, the uh, the limit is 50% on jet Five fuel. Five zero. Five zero, and the reason for that is uh, current jet engines actually need the aromatics that are in current jet fuel and they need some of the sulfur uh, for lubricity, uh, some of the seals and elastomers, we're not sure how compatible they are with higher blends of jet fuel. But there's work being done today on, in fact, there have been some flights actually demonstrated already on 100% jet uh, sustainable aviation fuel. So they, I think as time goes on, that, that 50% number is going to keep getting bigger. Uh, and I'll give you an example on the roadside. There are truck stops in California that are sending selling 100% renewable diesel fuel in the trucking market. So those, we've gone from an understanding of there may be some limits to uh, an understanding that there aren't limits. Brazil uses 100% ethanol in a large part of their vehicle fleet. So it's not technically impossible to go. It's, in fact, it's technically being done to Mm -hmm. run 100% bio in all of our transportation.
1: It would seem to be, I mean, as you know, that there's so much interest right now in in low carbon innovation and decarbonization of industrial sectors. And it would seem, you know, the the big ones that get attention in large part, perhaps due to Elon Musk and Tesla, are, you know, batteries and light vehicles, um, where I would imagine biofuels have a hard time growing market share. The other one that, that people talk about is hydrogen, of course, um, which seems to have a, a play, you know, maybe in the long haul uh, trucking or, or perhaps aviation. How, how should we think about the opportunity for biofuels in this? I, I would think that, that if I've got a plane and I can put biofuels in there without rebuilding anything, I would assume hydrogen is not quite as easy to put into a plane, that there would seem to be a, a real easy opportunity for growth in, in aviation. Um, is that the, the right way to think of this?
2: Yeah, I think I think as a couple of points Kevin made earlier is that it's going to have to be policy driven, and we're seeing that in California, and we're seeing those type of programs spread, um, Oregon, Washington, Canada, British Columbia. So that policy is driving this innovation um, because they're putting the incentive right in front of the refiners or whoever wants to make these investments. So certainly policy is driving. But an interesting thing that you're seeing in uh, sustainable aviation fuel is that that market is growing not just aimed at California, but in Europe um, and a lot of other places where it doesn't really have the policy support. And it comes into um, the point Kevin made earlier about that. The thinking of the environment uh, needs to be a you know a key pillar of um, driving this growth. And it seems that the airlines have. Um, been more aggressive, I'd say, and um, kind of self-imposing um, these this push to lower their uh, emissions. So that's that's been really interesting to see, you know, that aggression and um, that innovation, not solely leaning on um, policy.
1: It would seem that policy, I guess, pushes out the traditional fossil fuel, but but not necessarily it isn't needed to to push out competing innovation in terms of
3: batteries. Yeah.
4: One thing, to I guess maybe more, uh, if you step back a little bit more, a way to look at where we are today with uh, biofuels and all these alternative fuels. We were here at this, a similar spot in the late 1970s and another similar spot in the early to mid-1990s. And where we are is that the policies set off, a, if it's not technology prescriptive, which most of the policies really aren't, that it sets off a whole bunch of different ideas to convert, uh, to create bio and renewable fuels or alternative transportation systems, it sets all of that off. And we talk about hydrogen and EVs, and we talk about uh, you know renewable diesel and biodiesel and, and ethanol from all kinds of things. And if the policy stays in place, eventually it'll start to focus on a few winners. And the question is, is the winner going to be the fuel or is it going to be the feedstock? Is it going to be the system or is it going to be uh, something else? And I think where we are today is that there are all of these opportunities out there, all of these things that are out there vying for capital, vying for investment, vying for partners and offtake agreements. And where we are is that it's this kind of wonderfully rich mixture of things that are all going on in response to this policy environment and the trick is going to be to help sort out as the market sorts itself out to figure out what is economically the best option, what is from a carbon perspective the best options and how will policy continue to support it and I think the one thing to remember is that we're, we're setting off a round of technical innovation probably unlike anything we've seen before and uh, you and all along the entire supply chain that technical innovation is going to is, and is going to become very strong
1: which is maybe i think this is a kind of a a good place to 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 leave it um and i'd like to ask each of you uh your, your thoughts on kind of the next six to 12 months um you know what are the things whether geographically technologically uh policy geopolitically if there's one or two things that that one each of you is watching, you know, good or bad, you know, that that is going to be a, a catalyst uh, or a hurdle for biofuels going forward. But what are the things um, that that we should really be paying attention to? Um, I'll start with you, Kevin, and and work up. Uh.
4: Um, two things. One is uh, over the next few months, uh, we'll. Um, low carbon fuel standard type policies proliferate Uh, and we have uh, several states in the United States and even some countries that are considering adopting these so the question is will those policies continue to proliferate and strengthen or are they going to be held up by a perception of uh, stock markets being uh, in short supply maybe having to use more edible oils for some time uh, to produce more biofuels. So uh, we're watching very closely this tension point between uh, policy and uh, availability. And because policy has created an environment that's gotten ahead of the supply system, this is a very important tension point to watch.
2: Jordan, how about you? Yeah, we're, we're very zoomed in on, um, you know, obviously the U.S. biofuels market and how the Biden administration, how his um, Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, will handle a few big decisions that they have to make um, here in 2021. Just in the past few weeks, the biofuels were dealt a blow um, from a Supreme Court case that sided with um, small refiners um, regarding uh, RFS exemptions. So it'll be interesting to see how the the Biden EPA handles that um, and whether they Um, go kind of the more Trump administration route and um, be more friendly to those uh, small refiners seeking uh, kind of get out of jail free cards from RFS requirements and also um, how they uh, the kind of mandates that they put forward. Um, The EPA has the power to you know, propose the volumes um, that they want blended in um, 2021-2022. and twenty twenty three actually, um, and those are all expected to be proposed and finalized uh, by the end of the year. Um so it'll be very pivotal um, you know the direction um, the biofuels industry uh, goes and in, depending on what the biden Biden EPA does in the next six months. okay.
1: And Christoph, um, and maybe you can round us out. Uh, it, it's interesting that that Christoph, you began the, the the conversation today with 2023 discussion, and Jordan reintroduces 2023 now. So it sounds like there's a lot to pay attention to and a lot of implications within the next two years.
3: Absolutely, and um, I I would round it off with, um, you know, next generation biofuels. So from my point of view, the current environment is really the perfect breeding ground for these new ideas, new technologies. And there are quite a number of very interesting companies out there with very interesting technological approaches uh, to use more waste products real waste products not waste cooking oil but real waste products which are for which there are abundant supplies and which would then of course um, address all kind of sustainability issues uh, around uh, around biofuels so from that point of view i guess the next uh, six to twelve months will certainly bring some very exciting results from that area as well
1: all right well, thank you all, all, all three uh, for your thoughts and contributions today and, and I, uh, I, I hope that, that you've enjoyed this because I want to have you back sometime to go into more detail that there's so much to cover uh, in, say, Brazil or India or, or the U.S. alone uh, that, that it's hard to, to get everything into uh, a single conversation. So uh, I look forward to, to, to watching the space with you all and look forward to uh, continuing our conversation soon. Thank, thank, you, very thank you very much. very much. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.
0: To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com energyblog You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at Energysense at ihsmarket.com.
4: This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit IHSMarket.com energy. That's I-H-S-M-A-R-K-I-T forward slash energy.